This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back to 15-Minute History. I'm Joan Newberger, professor of history and editor of Not Even Past. And today our guest is Philippa Levine. Philippa is a professor of history, and her field is the British Empire, and she is going to speak today about eugenics. So, Philippa, why don't we begin with a definition? What was eugenics? Well, eugenics is a funny word, and it sounds, I think, quite funny to the modern ear. But you can kind of break it down as essentially the science of good breeding. It comes out of, of the Greek originally, um, and it really is about what you pass on to the next generation, what happens to your offspring, and therefore who the parents are, and what qualities parents bring to to baby-making. So that's really what eugenics is when it becomes a kind of government policy. But it starts out, as you rightly say, as a science. The term is invented... Or, or rather the term is, is produced by a guy called Francis Galton, who was a British scientist and traveller and writer, scientist in the very loosest way. Remember, this is a period in which people don't train as scientists in universities. But Galton was very, very interested in mathematics and particularly statistics, and probability was his thing. And he'd read the work of Charles Darwin, who was a distant cousin of his, and become very excited at the idea of heredity, because, of course, Darwin's work is all about heredity, mm-hmm. right? It's about evolution, but also about what happens with offspring? What do offspring take from their parents? And there are big debates about this in the 19th century. Darwin's voice is not the only voice. So eugenics picks up on this big debate that really gels around the 1850s, 1860s. And even before he invents the term eugenics in 1883, that's the the first year we know of in which the term comes out, Galton is already interested in thinking about what the probability of producing a genius in particular is. his, his, His first interest is in intelligence. It's not in race. It's not in class. It's in intelligence. It's very, very interesting. At the same time, he's traveled in Africa in the 1850s. And he's very interested in what he sees as the bodily racial differences between white people and Africans. So he's bringing all this stuff together and he publishes in the earlier period, but then invents this term in the late 1880s. But it is part of a bigger movement around evolution, around classification, but also, I think, around the the changes that are happening politically. Governments are beginning to say, you know, we've got bigger populations, we've got population growth, we have social problems that come out of that, we have bigger cities. How do we manage populations? So a lot of what eugenics becomes about by the early 20th century is literally the management of population. So how do we get from uh, a biological theory to social policy? That's a wonderful question, Joan, because that's really what's so interesting about eugenics is that on the one hand, it is a science not a very good science, but but at the time it was considered good science. And on the other hand, it is a set of social policies. And really, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's a whole, really, certainly across the developed world and across the colonial world, which of course is run by the developed nations, you have in the early 20th century increasing anxiety about this control and management of population for lots and lots of reasons. Uh, You want to make sure that populations don't revolt. You want to make sure that populations do the things that you need them to do. You want to make sure that you've got the labor force you need. On the other hand, 
it's expensive to manage populations, right? It's very expensive to, to have welfare provisions of various kinds. So governments are looking for cheap, efficient ways to control populations. And if you can do things to your problem population, the people who you regard as a problem, the people who end up in prison, the people who end up in the gutter, the people who have um, unpleasant diseases, if you can stop them from reproducing, the theory is that in the next generation, it will be much cheaper to control your population. So the social policy aspect in some ways is about what one historian writing in the 1970s called national efficiency. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so if, if, um, if we're talking about inheritance of traits, we're talking about reproduction. Yes. So then we're talking about sex. Yes. How is uh, the discussion of eugenics gendered in public policy? Deeply gendered in public policy. It comes back to sex, it comes back to family, and therefore, particularly in the early 20th century, in the late 19th century, it comes back to women. And so an enormous amount of eugenic policy, although it does affect men as well, is aimed at women. If you can stop the wrong women from having babies, mm -hmm. then you go a long way towards, at least that's how the theory was, that you go a long way towards dealing with your problem. And so there was a, for instance, in this country, in the United States, sterilization, compulsory, involuntary sterilization was a very, very common technique. 27 states in the US by the early 1930s had compulsory sterilization hmm. uh, laws on the books. Now, men who, who were... Who um, were subject to compulsory sterilization. That's also, it's an interesting and a complicated question. So people in power get to decide that's who the problem the is. Problem. Yes, people in power, that is to say scientists, politicians, welfare workers very often. Mm -hmm. But the people who get sterilized will differ from state to state. So for instance, in Virginia, which was a very, very important state in the sterilization and eugenic debates because it's the state that led to the Supreme Court decision that really made compulsory sterilization constitutionally legal. In Virginia, the most likely recipients of compulsory sterilization techniques were actually poor whites. It was people from the wrong side of the tracks mm -hmm. who brought down whiteness, who were the major target. And they ended up mostly at a place called the Lynchburg Colony, which was essentially a mental asylum. And the price of, of freedom, the price of getting out of there was your tubes were tied. If you move across the country to California, which is also a very important state, in eugenics because it sterilized more people than any other state mm. in the union most of the people who get sterilized are either mexican-american or increasingly african-american mm -hmm. so it isn't only about class or only about race or only about gender but it's always about all of them mm -hmm. it's poor people it's people who have hereditary diseases but it's often people of a particular social class or people whose behavior is seen to be somehow outside the norm deviant behavior mm-hmm well, now, as I mentioned earlier, you work on the British Empire. So um, were these sterilization policies similar in imperial and national contexts or well, Britain different? never actually has compulsory sterilization. Okay. It's very interesting if you look at where you see compulsory sterilization. It's mm -hmm. always something that's quite controversial. Now, what's really interesting is Winston Churchill, the famous Winston Churchill, was really big on the idea of compulsory sterilization and actually spoke about it in Parliament and encouraged Britain to take that road. Britain did not. Britain was a much more moderate country politically, and he was out of step um, with British sensibilities on that. The countries where you see compulsory sterilization, there's quite a few of them. Um, 
the US and Germany and Nazi Germany are the two really big ones. Mm -hmm. The other really interesting and intriguing place where we see compulsory sterilization is in Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting because we think of Scandinavia as this really liberal, kind of welfare-minded place. It was part of their set of welfare policies. Mm -hmm. Now, technically, it wasn't compulsory there, but in real terms it was because, again, the price of freedom from an asylum was having your tubes tied. Mm -hmm. Um, so obviously this was a, a negative effect of eugenics. Were there, were there any positives that came in terms of um, hygiene or public health policies that came out of this discussion? Very much so, very much so. Um, and it's very interesting because if you look, again, one of the fun things about writing, about editing this book was that we looked at the, the entire world. Mm -hmm. and, and we did that because we saw these amazingly different policies all grounded in the same science and the same policy. And coming but up at we, the same time. And coming up at the same time, the late 19th, but particularly the early 20th century. But incredibly different ways of mm -hmm. dealing with it. And in fact, historians tend to divide eugenics into two categories, positive eugenics and negative eugenics. Oh, that's yeah. the phraseology that's mm -hmm. often used. Positive eugenics include things such as blood tests before marriage to ensure that when you go into a marriage, you're not carrying, or at least that every party will know if there's a hereditary disease or if there's sexually transmissible diseases mm -hmm. because, of course, they can have consequences for newborn babies. Um, there's a very serious consequences for gonorrhea and syphilis for neonates, um, as you may know. Mm -hmm. um, that's one example of positive eugenics. Others were the um, tendency to provide both prenatal and, um, and postnatal care for mothers mm -hmm. uh, so that mothers and babies got the kind of nutrition that they would need. In some countries we have what was known by the French name puericulture, puericulture mm. which was adopted not just in France but across Latin America and that was essentially welfare for mothers and babies after the baby was born. Um, in some cases it was the eradication of endemic diseases um, because they were seen as obviously affecting population. So in a country like Iran or Brazil that was sort of a main thing. Sometimes it was about the rural water supply because people were dying from those. Because mm -hmm. it was population management, mm -hmm. even though heredity was at its base, it often incorporated these other things. Mm -hmm. And in places like Hong Kong and India, it becomes birth control practice because you have places that have very large populations. They want to limit that population so that they have enough to go around. Mm -hmm. And so what we see is active birth control um, mechanisms being put into place, not compulsory ones, but just the availability and access to family planning. Mm -hmm. So these are more positive ways in which you're not forcing things on people, but you're offering different kinds of services. Um, I think most people probably associate eugenics with the Nazis. Yes. Um, and we'll get to them in a second. But um, I was really interested to discover that uh, it was a, um, the, the political um, effects of eugenics were really around the um, new nations and new politics after World War I. Yes. Uh, could you talk about that a little bit? What, what makes it so common in the world for eugenics to, eugenic policies to spread in that period? I think it really is this combination on the one hand of, of a real sense of optimism about science being good for society, mm -hmm. on the one hand, very powerful and powerful even today. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, I think the changes brought about by urbanisation 
um, and by new nation states with the promise of democracy. This was in some ways how you could deal with democracy. Mm -hmm. So you have states that... So you give people a lot of power, but then you need to control them. Well, yeah. I mean, democracy comes about in some ways, I think, also because of population change, right? In a sense, you don't have that argument when you have a relatively small population. But when you've got a larger population, the press, I think... Um, for cha- for political change is much greater. Mm-hmm. And so when you put together the fact that you have bigger populations in industrialising countries, which also means that you have young people leaving their families and moving into the cities on their own, mm-hmm. you have a different sexual behaviours, you have different political behaviours. So I think the kind of combination of those things produces in these new nation states that are interested in what kinds of politics they're going to have. Mm-hmm. And this is the moment of welfare. This is the moment, remember, of progressivist politics in the United States. Mm-hmm. It's the moment at which the Liberal Party in, in England is f- beginning to experiment with the, 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 the what, what is essentially the beginning of the, of the British welfare state, which will lead ultimately to the National Health Service and all of those kinds of things. This is the moment of welfare. Mm-hmm. This is when the League of Nations, remember, also is thinking about welfare in a broader sense, right? So you've got all of this going on. Mm-hmm. Add to that this optimism about the importance that science brings to the table, that science mm-hmm. is going to be able to produce world peace, that science is going to be able to eradicate disease, that science is going to be able to cure hunger. All of those things, right, mm-hmm. are really, really important. And it's that combination that's unbelievably potent mm-hmm. and incredibly seductive for both new and old governments. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's turn to the Nazis then. Um, uh, to what extent was eugenic science connected with anti-Semitism and the attack on uh, and the mass murder of a whole population? There's definitely a connection, but I think what's really important to stress and stress and stress, because I think it's not understood very well, is that eugenics was already there in Germany in the early 20th century. Um, Berlin had been one of the most active um, scientific places in the world in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. And the Rockefeller Foundation helps found the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, which is one of the major kind of racial hygiene and eugenic um, research institutes in the world in the 1910s and 1920s. So when Hitler comes to power, he's able to kind of plug into an existing highly respected science. Mm -hmm. The other thing to remember before we get to the Nazis is that much of the Nazi policy that was promulgated after 1933, Hitler's rise to power, was actually forged in and first really shaped in America. Um, And Hitler is very, very clear about what he borrows from American eugenics. American eugenics was very well developed at that point. And the, the one of the first laws that Hitler passes when he comes to power in 1933 is a compulsory sterilization law. Mm-hmm. Alongside, well, the two, the two, the compulsory sterilization law and um, a ban on interracial marriage. Well, where did he get both and, of those? And they were based on American models? Oh, yes, completely and utterly. Mm-hmm. There was something called the model sterilization law that a man called Harry Laughlin had helped set up in the United States uh, after the Buck versus Bell, the Supreme Court case in 1927. And Hitler borrowed that almost 
to the word for the 1933 Act. And, of course, Virginia, the place where the Buck versus Bell mm-hmm. um, decision had really been forged, was also a place that had interracial marriage laws in 1924. Mm-hmm. The so-called one-drop rule, the, the Racial Integrity Act, had forbidden people of different races to marry. So much of what Hitler does comes from American and other models, but in particular the US model. Now, of course, he takes it to an extreme. And what horrified people when they went into the camps at the end of the war and the stories that were coming out even before then, and this is what really the Nuremberg doctor's trial was about, Mm. was that they were using inmates in the camps to do eugenic research, not just in the camps, but outside the camps. And so doctors in the camps were, for example, and this is particularly gruesome, they were doing things like harvesting eyeballs or organs of various kinds and sending them off to their, you know, their friends who were not working in the camps, but doing research. So it fuels both civil and military medical research in the camps um, with no no sense that they're causing pain and Mm -hmm. suffering. So this is where eugenics sort of reaches its most extreme form. Mm -hmm. But it is important to remember that it is something that's already in Germany prior to the war Mm -hmm. or prior to Hitler's rise. Mm -hmm. And it is also very well developed, particularly in the United States, and that's where Hitler's getting his models. And then the Nuremberg trials at the end of the war, you mentioned the doctor's trials, um, really expose this to the world uh, and really expose the negative sides of eugenics to have a role in kind of the pendulum swinging away from eugenics policies. Yes, the most important thing that came out of the Nuremberg doctor's trial was, of course, the question of informed consent, Mm -hmm. um, that you couldn't experiment on people unless they were a aware and understood what it was that you planned to do and agreed to do that now informed consent is a tricky business in many ways um, and it's something that you know people still struggle with today but it was the Nuremberg trials that absolutely put that into place absolutely and in a sense what happened to eugenics was that the term disappeared, but the practices did not. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sterilization, most American states kept their sterilization laws on the books until the 1970s and continued to practice sterilization until there was a bit of a fuss about it in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, one of the things the book shows is that uh, eugenics was everywhere in one form or another, but was there... Um, opposition to it everywhere as well. Yes, there was. There was always opposition um, in in every country that you look at. There's no question about that. Um, And there were intelligent opponents. um, There were intellectual opponents. There were opponents, particularly religious opponents. Mm -hmm. The Catholic Church was horrified by eugenics because, of course, one of the things that eugenics did was to encourage birth control mm-hmm. um, and encourage also fiddling with reproduction, right? right. Messing with reproduction. And you yeah. do not do that if you're mm-hmm. if you're of the Catholic faith. So the Catholic Church was one of the most um, mm-hmm. um, vocal of the opponents, but there were many. But what's interesting, again, about eugenics and really worth stressing is you can't say, oh, this comes you know, it's Hitler, therefore it's socialism, or Hitler, it's therefore the right wing. What's fascinating is that it has supporters and opponents from everywhere on the political spectrum. So you have this really, that people were such weird bedfellows here. You know, on the one hand, George Bernard Shaw and um, Margaret Sanger were eugenicists, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, how different 
you know, it's not Hitler. I mean, they would have been horrified. On the other hand, you've got left-wing lawyers and the Catholic Church teaming up against eugenics. So it's very, very complicated. It doesn't fit the way that we think about politics. And for me, that's what makes it so interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't pigeonhole it. You can't classify it. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, it's, it's sort of disappeared as a major movement, um, but what is the legacy of eugenics? Do we still do? Do we still have practices that derive from uh, the whole movement and many, from the science? Many people think, um, and indeed, there's a there's a door called the back door, back door to eugenics by a man called Troy Duster. Many people today believe that we actually have a good deal of eugenic practice um, going on in different kinds of ways. And that has been more and more the case with the kind of genetics, sophistication in genetics that have emerged, of course, in the last 20-ish years, mm-hmm. genome mapping, DNA, encode, those kinds of things. You mm-hmm. know, now that we know how DNA works, how the genome works, we are able to do, you know, ultrasounds tell you the sex of a baby. Mm-hmm. And what's happening in some countries where male children are more favoured than female children is it's allowing parents to say, right, we will abort female fetuses. That's one example of, I think, a eugenic practice. Um, sperm banks, in which people can flip through and say, mm, six foot three, blonde hair, <laughs> IQ of 140, that's my donor. Mm-hmm. That's a form of eugenics, right? right? Because what you're doing is you are scientifically breeding well. Definition of eugenics science of good breeding. So we have. And choosing traits that you assume will. Um, physical traits that you assume will convey social and intellectual. And that, by the way, is the bad science. Because in fact, what eugenics never understood was that there is no simple passing on of traits in those ways. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not as simple as it sounds. Just because he's six foot three, blonde and has an IQ of 140 doesn't mean the child (laughs) will get those (laughs) characteristics, right? There's recessive as well as dominant genes. We know that now. They didn't know that then. Although by the 1930s, and and in fact, this is another answer to your question, because the other opposition to uh, eugenics that really starts to develop in the 1930s is the new genetics, uh, what what we call... um, um, the new synthesis uh, that comes out, the biological new synthesis that leads to a more sophisticated genetic starting in the 1930s. And major geneticists who earlier had been quite interested in eugenics and thought that it had some value start to distance themselves and sever their ties with eugenics. Mm-hmm. People um, in this country, like Thomas Hunt Morgan, in Britain, Lionel Penrose, very, very major geneticists start to say, you know, this science isn't good science. Mm-hmm. So ba- it's bad science in that respect. Mm-hmm. It, it's extremely interesting to see the, the connection between things we think of as science and things we think of as social policy that are based on something other than logical, rational studies. I think that's exactly right. We assume that science is always rational, that science is always logical, and that it's always objective. Mm -hmm. But I think what we see in eugenics in particular, and in some of its successors, is that humans are involved. And if there's humans involved, then there's subjectivity involved. So we shouldn't ignore what science tells us, but we need as humans to take control of the choices that are made on our behalf. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. Thank you.
You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15minutehistory. That's the numerals 15minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.